Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Do you ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mention in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, Debbie. It's good to talk with you today. Hi, Diana. Good to talk with you, too. How are you feeling? It sounds like you have a little bit of a cold going on. Yeah, I've been sick for a few days, so I apologize to everyone for my voice, and I'll try to mute it if I have to cough. Yes, yeah, so yeah, gonna... I've been a little under the weather. How about you? I'm I'm doing good. I'm not sick, um, but uh, I'm excited to talk about this um, topic of a relationship with you because it feels like something that we haven't really um, discussed much on our show, and I think that it is an area where a lot of people will be able to apply in their own lives whether they're in a relationship or not right now. So I'm excited. Yeah. Me too. And this is something that um, Diana did a lot of work to get this ready. And so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to uh, talk about uh, romantic relationships in particular today. And certainly having a secure and connected relationship is one of the best predictors of good health, resilience, and well-being. And all those studies that talk about longevity, they always point to relationships as one of those big factors and that helps us live long and certainly being in a romantic relationship is part of that. And Sue Johnson, who is a leading researcher on romantic relationships, talks a lot about the attachment bond between partners and how it really buffers us from our life stressors. So lots of challenges um, come across us in our lives and having a relationship that's a, that's a strong connected one helps us navigate all those stressors of life. We learn to attach in our early childhood, and often these patterns continue and predict how we attach as adults. So today I'm going to talk a bit about um, some of this attachment theory that Sue Johnson draws from in her emotionally focused therapy, and talk about how it applies to our adult romantic relationships, how interactions between couples can erode over time, uh, and then also talk about some strategies that you could use to enhance your own romantic relationship so that you stay strong and connected for um, a long time. And I really like the Tara Brock uh, often says that it's not survival of the fittest, but it's the survival of the most nurtured. And that's certainly true when we're talking about um, our relationships with our, with our partners. Mm-hmm. 
Sounds good. Sounds good. So, I, yeah. you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today actually comes from this workshop that I attended a year ago um, in, with my own partner. So one of the benefits of being a psychologist is that you get to attend all these fun workshops and deduct them. <laughs> uh, and they really apply to both your professional life, but then also you get the side benefit of applying it in your own life. And a year ago, I, I, for, for Christmas, I gave um, my husband a homework gift. Are you familiar with what a homework gift is, Debbie? No, I have no idea. I've never heard that before. A so a Homer, I think I frequently give them, but a Homer gift is when Homer Simpson gives Marge Simpson a bowling ball with a big H on it for her birthday. Oh, <laughs> so it's the idea that you're giving. It's really someone, a gift for yourself. Yes, a gift, a gift for yourself. And so for okay. Christmas, <laughs> I gave my husband a couples therapy workshop. <laughs> what every man is wanting to open on Christmas morning. Right. Um, <laughs> kind of like when my husband gave me mountain biking tires, exactly. tires for my mountain bike one oh. year. So I'd go with him more. Yeah. Very Homer of him. <laughs> yes. So yeah. the Homer gifts, um, they seem to show up more and more the, the longer you're in a relationship. So I gave him this, this workshop for an emotionally focused couples therapy uh, up in Tiburon, California. And it was with doctors, Michelle Gannon and Sam Jenich. And a lot of the information that I'm going to talk about today came from what I learned there. Um, it's also coming from, if you're interested in some of the books that I'm drawing from, the Hold Me Tight book by Dr. Sue Johnson and the Love Sense book by Dr. Sue Johnson, uh, I think are both really good ones that um, talk about a lot of the concepts that we're going to be exploring. So emotionally focused therapy, or EFT, uh, is an empirically supported program for couples. And uh, Sue Johnson, who's the primary researcher behind it, has found that um, it's actually superior to behavioral marital therapy. Um, about 70 to 73% of couples who undergo emotionally focused therapy are able to no longer be relationally distressed at the end of therapy. And these improvements are made and maintained for about two to three years um, assessments uh, in the future. So that has a good... Um, long-term effect. And what its real focus is on is on actually interdependence, learning how to become more interdependent or even relationally dependent upon your partner. It strengthens attachment bonds and it really emphasizes trust and being able to turn to your partner for soothing and security. So I was just wondering in thinking about couples, can you, do, is there a couple that you can think about? You don't have to disclose who they are, but someone who has a particularly healthy relationship and what are the things that stand out for you about that relationship, long-term relationship between a couple, Debbie? Um, yeah, I'd say um, probably someone who's pretty connected with each other and treat each other, you know, kindly and have a certain amount of like openness with each other and um, you know, kind of loving and supportive and connected, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you say loving and supportive and connected, how does that show up behaviorally? Like what, what would you, what are some of the signs or symptoms of that? Um, just a certain, I don't know. It's like a closeness that you kind of observe where they seem to just like be there for each other and I guess open in terms of their, like emotionally connected with each other, if mm -hmm. that makes sense, and kind of work out problems in a relatively healthy kind of way. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about maybe like if you had another couple at a dinner party and and one couple is constant, one member of the couple is constantly kind of doing subtle criticisms or putting their partner down yeah. or giving examples of, you know, how they don't quite cut it or sarcastic. You could see that as maybe a disconnected couple, right? Versus maybe another couple where you just see these little moments where they're looking at each other or one hand goes on another or they're maybe checking in with each other throughout the night. How's it going over here? Touching base. It kind of reminds me of, you know, the kid that that goes out and plays but then comes in and checks in with mom and goes out again and checks in. So in, in a closer relating couple, you're going to see more of that latter behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's these, it's sort of like, how do we quite put our finger on what, what is it about this couple that's keeping them connected? So we'll talk a little bit about that. But according to Sue Johnson, the key to a healthy relationship is not that you don't fight um, or even that you have to be particularly similar, but the key to healthy relationships is emotional responsiveness. And emotional responsiveness is having enough trust that you turn to each other as a secure attachment. So when we ask these questions, do I, you know, do I matter? Will you be there for me? The answer is without a doubt, yes. And if you think about mm -hmm. if you were, you know, whatever, in the Twin Towers going down, who is it that you would call, right? Who is it that you would that you would want to go to first if you were really afraid in a room and it was dark? Like who, who would be that contact person? And when we're, when we're young, it's our it's our often our parent. But when we move into a secure romantic relationship, it hopefully it becomes that that person that we turn to. Does that sort of make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. So let's talk about this early um, attachment theory and how uh, it it relates to what what we're talking about is how we attach as adults. So there's there's three primary attachment patterns that we develop as children. Uh, and, and, and actually four, what one of them is, was developed was sort of, um, is sort of a combination of, of two of them, but they came from this study by Mary Ainsworth. And I wanted maybe you to talk about it, Debbie, since you have so much background in developmental psychology, what that early attachment study showed. Yeah. So Ainsworth had this, um, strange situation task. She was measuring attachment, which is a very difficult thing to measure, um, and so she found sort of a proxy that's very behavioral in the lab where what she'd do is she'd take really young kids and she'd have them come into a room um, and kind of play with their parent. And then a stranger would come in and then usually it was the mother. The mother would leave the room and leave the child in this, you know, kind of unfamiliar room with a strange person. And the mother would be gone for a few minutes and they would come back in and re reunite with the child. And they'd actually do this a couple times um, during the study. And what Ainsworth found is that there were different sort of styles of how people, these young kids responded. I think they were about a year old, how they responded to this situation. Some kids um, who she described as secure, securely attached, they would be distressed by the parent leaving by the mom leaving and then comforted by the mom when she came back in. Um, and the avoidant, what she describes as the avoidant children would sort of ignore the mom for a while and just sort of keep playing and not really express much emotion about the mom um, kind of coming back in for the reunion. And she described the anxious style as 
babies that would just keep crying and just have a really hard time calming down and soothing after being separated from the mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you mentioned there was one that's sort of a combination. She called it the disorganized attachment pattern, which is those are the kids that would sort of show a combination of the anxious and avoidant um, behavior, sort of the push-pull behavior. Right. So it's sort of a classic, classic in developmental psychology because, you know, it's sort of a creative way for her to measure attempt to measure um, attachment. Right. So these four attachment styles being secure is I can, I can go to this person and they have the capability of being, of being able to soothe me down. Avoidant is sort mm-hmm. of like, Ooh, I don't know if I can go to my mom. I don't know if my mom can actually soothe me or I'm not sure if I want to go to my mom to be soothed. And actually what's interesting about the avoidant is that internally they, when they measure distress, they find internal measures of distress, even though externally you don't see anything. And then you have the ancient, anxious, like, I want to go to mom, but I can't quite get myself regulated by her. And then the disorganized. And what, what Sue Johnson argues is that these, these early attachment patterns, uh, that we sort of see similar patterns um, as adults. And some of those similar patterning in our relationships can be when we feel vulnerable in the relationship, are we able to turn towards our partner and be soothed by them and get reconnected? Or do we have a tendency towards withdrawing from our partner, um, being avoided, shutting down? Some of the, the um, typical withdrawal patterns, uh, avoided patterns would be shutting down, getting quiet, moving into problem-solving mode, um, maybe minimizing your partner's concerns, refusing to talk, getting defensive. So kind of that pulling away. Or are we more um, sort of anxiously attached in that we become sort of um, kind of pursue our partner but can't get soothed by them? So we may do this through attacking or criticizing. Uh, We may yell or make threats um, or insist on making our point, demand attention or blame our partner. So that would be more sort of an attacking um, or what would be under the um, anxious patterning. And these three ways of responding when we're in, in a relationship, we all sort of maybe have a tendency towards maybe all three of them at d- different times, but um, mm-hmm. maybe we have more of a tendency <laughs> towards one. Um, I know I, I'm certainly an avoider. I like clam up and turn into a turtle when I'm, um, when I'm feeling threatened in my relationship. And oftentimes uh, in, in relationships, you see sort of a pattern where people that are withdrawing may map on to somebody that tends to be more of an anxious attached um, a pursuer. So one's sort of withdrawing and the other one's attacking or going towards to try and get them to get some responsiveness. But the more that they're attacking or criticizing or moving towards or more anxious, the more that the withdrawer uh, withdraws. And you can see mm-hmm. how that cycle would just feed itself and move into a negative pattern. Um, so, it, you know, if you think about this and these three attachment patterns, we could think about maybe an example of uh, if a partner maybe was was supposed to be home by, we've all experienced this, like our partner's supposed to be home by five, now it's 5.30. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how, how would you see maybe a anxiously attached partner responding to that if, if, if it's 5.30? Like what, what would they tend to do? So they'd be the one that would still be pretty, pretty upset, right? So the mm-hmm. partner finally walks in the door and they'd be hard to calm them down mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. They'd be yeah. still really worried and upset and anxious even after the right. reunion. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So even after the reunion, they're still questioning person and they may even before the reunion start doing like texting 
like blowing up their phone with like a text every five minutes, where are you? And then caps, where are you? And then phone call, where are you? You know, you can see that escalation in more of the anxiously um, sort of patterned relating. Let's do, uh-huh. the, let's do the withdrawal pattern. So if, if your partner is supposed to be home at 5 and now it's 5.30 and you have more of a tendency towards withdraw, what would be some of the things that you may notice with that person? Um, they just do the silent treatment maybe or, yeah, like file for divorce. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Start um, looking at divorce but yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So get kind of like just get mad maybe mm-hmm. but not say anything right exactly so that sort of simmering yeah simmering inside but not saying anything and so maybe the partner walks in the door and they're like hi and they just go into the kitchen and keep working but inside underneath they're they're, you know super mad but never but don't say anything and then it's 10 o'clock at night and they're crawling into bed and they're just like getting under the covers and they're still mad (laughs) you know and having have not communicated any of this right so that would be more of the withdraw. Not that I know anything about that one. Uh-huh. And <laughs> <laughs> I may have done that a time or two myself, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and then the finally, what would be maybe a secure attachment pattern that would, if the partner's not home at five and now it's 530 and they still aren't home? They'd be worried and might maybe check in. And then when the partner came home, would probably tell them I was worried, but then would, you know, talk to them about it. But then move on, you know, yeah. be comforted once the person got home, right? Yeah. They may say yeah. when the partner, when their person comes home, walks in the door, something like, I was really worried about you. When you don't get home, mm-hmm. I start to worry about what happened to you and if you're okay and I care so much about you. You know, yeah. next time could you do X, Y, or Z, right? So they actually would yeah. communicate the vulnerable feeling that's underneath. Yeah, in a more sort of open, honest kind of way. Yeah, right. exactly. And then be able to be soothed. Now, then hopefully the other partner would respond in a, in a way by giving them, I'm here for you, hug, I'm sorry you felt that way. And then we kind of move back together again. So in, in thinking about the science of healthy relationships, it's again, it's not that we fight. And in fact, fighting may be a, a, an indicator that we've gotten a little bit disconnected and this is a way to find our way back again towards closeness. That if we could have a healthy way of relating and a healthy cycle with each other, then we fight and then we actually find our way towards closeness as opposed to fighting leading to a negative cycle that pushes us further and further apart. And so if we can turn towards our partner when we're in distress, and express more of sort of the uncertainty that we feel or the underlying emotions that we feel, then we can find our way towards comfort and soothing and that attachment bond. One way that I like to think about it is I read this this poet, Mark Nepo, in the mornings, and he has this little sort of meditation, daily meditation journal that I read. And he talks about Um, salmon swimming upstream and when salmon are moving upstream to spawn the way that they find their way up is interestingly that they go to the place where there's the strongest current because if there's the strongest current to swim against then there's less likely to be obstacles the place the places where there's less current there's more likely to be like boulders in the way and relationships are sort of like that if we can actually move into that difficult place of being vulnerable or saying what we're thinking inside our heads but are so afraid to actually say, 
that's the that's the most strong current coming towards us, the most uncomfortable place to put ourselves. But what we will find is that there will be fewer obstacles in the way in being able to meet our partner there. So that's one way to kind of think about it is that we have to be a little bit like salmon swimming upstream. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so it's actually, this is something that we crave. And there was this Rutgers uh, University National Marriage Project where um, in 2001, and they found that 80% of women in their 20s said that having a man who could talk about his feelings was more important to them than having one who could make a make a good living. This is a heterosexual sample. Um, so actually, we long for this emotional connection, and it's what we want over and above some of the other things that we think of um, in terms of like financial stability or someone that can help out in the home or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's very important. And it also, there's some indication that that secure attachment actually impacts our ability to face stress and distress in our lives and uh, in, a, um, in, a, in, a, in, in our brains. So Jim Cohn, who's a neuroscientist, did sort of a foundational study, an fMRI study with married couples. And he had um, these married couples where the wife was placed in an fMRI machine and measured her brain. And what was he was measuring is that they were shocking her toes. <laughs> And at, before they would shock her toes. Ouch. I know. This is actually, you can do this still. Some research you can't do anymore, but I'm sure they were paid well. Um, so before they'd shock her toes, they'd, they'd present a red X on the screen. And they were measuring two things. One, they were measuring um, where in her, how her brain lit up in response to the X. So it's that anticipation of um, pain, which is one of, you know, we're, we're scared, and in particular, the right interior insula and hypothalamus and um, the dorsolateral or prefrontal cortex, all those areas tend to kind of light up and show a strong response when we're anticipating pain. And then the other thing that they measured was actually her subjective experience of pain. And they did a couple of studies. In the first study, they just compared um, her with anticipating pain alone in the room. And then they had um, actually a stranger, a research assistant, come and hold her hand while she's about to get shocked. And then they had her partner come in and hold her hand while she is going to get shocked. And what they found is, is that having a stranger helps you with um, anticipating the pain, lowers the, the brain activation, and also your subjective experience. But actually really holding your partner's hand is significantly more effective in soothing you. It soothes your brain and it soothes you in your subjective experience. And then they did the study again where they, now they had distressed partners, <laughs> so people that were mm. in conflict. And now you're holding the hand of the person that you are married to but you don't really like right now. And uh -huh. they found that, that, that it was not effective in soothing brains or in making them feel any better when they're about to be shocked. But that after a bout of emotionally focused therapy, that same couple, they went in again and they did it again, holding hands could soothe their brains and could soothe their subjective experience. So actually how we relate to each other impacts how we experience the world. And if we can have a secure attachment with somebody, it helps us navigate things like loss and stress and you know all the things that we, that we face in our lives. So it sounds like that just having that emotion 
emotional connection as a couple is really helpful for, you know, as you go through challenges in life, just to have someone to help comfort yeah. you during yeah. that. Someone who's supportive. Yeah. 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 And it's not that they have to take away your pain or change your pain in any way, but just hold your hand in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Like just holding, holding someone's hand makes a difference. And it's those little, actually those little affectionate moves that make, make us feel more connection. And those are, as we'll talk about some of the things that actually get lost as um, we, we um, have longer term relationships, we stop doing some of that stuff. So we'll talk more about that. But I want to first talk a little bit about acceptance because there was there's another whole um, really effective therapy, which is an acceptance-based therapy that was developed by Neil Jacobson and Andrew Christensen. And it's um, based on this idea of, you know, a lot of behavioral therapy for couples is about this behavioral exchange. So looking at communication training and all this kind of ways to be able to communicate more effectively and problem solve together and do all that. But if you don't have the acceptance piece in place, mm -hmm. they will not work. And there are more, there are likely to be many differences between you and your partner. And oftentimes these differences are the source of conflict. More likely than not, um, you have more differences and similarities. And th there was a study by Houston and Houts who showed, investigated the probability that you're going to match on um, with, uh, find a mate who matches on these three dimensions, such as like role preference and leisure time preference and overall compatibility. And the probability that you're going to find someone that's a perfect match for you is about 17%. So it's pretty unlikely that you're going to find someone that's going to match on all areas. And the more that we try and change our partner, um, the more dissatisfied we're going to be in our relationship. So being able to accept, which is really, if you looked at the dictionary, it's defined as the act of taking or receiving something. So it's not about resignation or yielding, but rather taking and receiving and accepting your partner as they are. If we do that, if we accept our partner and our differences, then they will be more tolerable. <laughs> and trying yeah. to, as we all know, trying to change our partner is going to get us stuck. <clears throat> I really like, so in this, um, this type of therapy, the Neil Jacobson um, Integrative Couples Therapy, one of the assignments that, that you give, which is such a fun assignment, is a, a wish list. And so in the first, um, you know, sort of beginning stages of therapy, you have each partner sit down and write down what would your partner's wish list be? So it may be like putting my socks in the laundry pile and washing out this, the bathroom sink after I spit my toothpaste in it. And you, know, you, kind mm -hmm. of, you write down all the things yeah. that, that you think your partner would really wish for or sitting next to them on the couch and putting my arm around them, not your own wishes. So you start with this wish list and then you go in and you share your, share the wish, wish list for each other. So you get to share, these are the things that I think that you would really want from me. And that actually feels really connecting because you, you know, your partner's thinking about you and they may know lots of things about you that you didn't even know about. And then you give the assignment that next week is, I want you to do something on this wish list every day without telling them what you're doing or what you did. And so, and then you come back in and you, and, and you discuss, and oftentimes the partners are, are wrong in guessing what their partner did for them, hmm. you know, but it's this, this act of what if I were to work towards 
caring for my partner in this way and granting them their wish list. And then I'm moving out of my whole objective being about changing them. So this idea that I actually can work towards thinking about how I could connect more with them. So think about doing that, making a wish list for each other. It's, it's a fun and project. Yeah. It's also focusing on what you can do instead of focusing on all the things the other person isn't doing right. the are bothering you, you know, so you're taking a little bit of personal accountability there to make some, some sort of change. Right. Yeah, exactly. So acceptance is a very important part um, and really at the core of a successful and happy relationship. So the other, what I want to talk a little bit about more is what erodes a relationship over time and what, What Sue Johnson would argue is that it's repeated moments of disconnection. And when these disconnections occur, they, we don't, we actually withdraw from relationship or we, um, criticize and it creates a larger and larger gap. So John Gottman, who's probably one of the most famous, um, you know, relationship experts, he has a a lab called the love lab. He looked at satisfied couples and what he found is that satisfied partners respond to what's called bids for connection. So a bid for connection is, um, you know, maybe like, you know, my, my husband often points out birds, like there's a red tail hawk come out outside. And in that moment, if I'm actually put down what I'm doing and I go outside and look, as opposed to saying, oh, just a minute, right? So when, when, we, when we make a bid for connection, our partner responds 87% of the time, more likely to be a satisfied partner, satisfied couples, as opposed to dissatisfied couples only respond about 30% of the time. So we need to, to be satisfied in a relationship, we need to actually be responding to these moments of connection way more times than not. And what can Mm -hmm. erode a relationship over time if there's lots of bids for connection and we're just dismissing them um, as opposed to responding. In contrast, what's interesting is that for for, um, healthy parent-child relationships, our children only need us to respond to them 30% of the time. (laughs) And part of that... (laughs) is that they are experts in bidding for connection, right? So children will just bid for connection all day long. But in, a, in, in our romantic relationships, those bids for connection actually lessen over time. We just do less of them, and therefore they're even more important to respond well, to. Well, I'm really glad you specified that, because as you're talking about that, I was thinking of all the ch- times my children are like, mommy, mommy, and I say, hold on just a second. Yeah. That's so okay. glad they only need 30. Okay, good. 30%, 30%, 30% <laughs> response, response rates for your kids, Okay, but 87% but, response rates okay, for so your partner. Okay, so the romantic partner, you can't right. get away with that. Okay. And if you look at those, those early um, parenting, that time in early parenting when you have a new baby, what's the first mm-hmm. thing to go besides your dog? <laughs> your relationship with your dog is the first thing to go. Your partner. Yeah. And part of yep. that is because of the bids for connection and all of them are going to, to your young children. So we need to take a look at that. And what, um, what Gottman also argued, he, he did this um, study of, he videotaped 75 couples and in these little 10 minute videos, and then he studied them um, longitudinally and looked at and was able to predict their divorce, um, 90, 92% accuracy of prediction of divorce based on these 10 minute videos. 
And what he found is that there was four behaviors that occurred that were in common that predicted a likelihood of divorce. So what he called them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So here are the four behaviors. One is contempt for your partner. So if you are demonstrating, like during this 10 minute video, they were looking down, they were rolling their eyes, they were sort of just sort of expressing this nonverbal content, I don't really like you um, kind, mm -hmm. kind of way. A second is um, a criticism. So the tendency to find fault and bring out problems. So all, you know, sort of commenting and critiquing, critiquing partners. The third was stonewalling. So this one would be associated more with that withdrawal attachment pattern. So shutting down conversation when they're talking about problems. Oh, we don't need to talk about that anymore. Oh, you're still worried about that. Why don't you just get over it? You know, trying, you know, sort of stonewalling and shutting down attempts um, to connect. And then the mm -hmm. fourth was defensiveness. So throwing out critical responses to feedback, not being open and accepting and sort of defending rather than really hearing their partner. So these four patterns, contempt, criticism, stonewalling, and defensiveness, predicted divorce uh, with 92% accuracy. And that was just during these little 10-minute videos. So these small ways that we're interacting with each other actually have, over time, big implications. And if you think about it, it's sort of like waves eroding a shoreline, right? It's like, if you repeatedly do this, your connection gets eroded over time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we get distant and we, we stop rem remembering why we fell in love with this person. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So it, there is some, um, some sort of developmental, processes that happen in a relationship over time. So there's sort of this lifespan of what happens in our partnership. And early on, the first state of relationship, stage of relationship is sort of the spellbound stage. So we have that infatuation and we, we are kind of excited about our partner, you know, the potential of a relationship. We're a little bit anxious. We're curious. We're wondering, do they like me? And we actually end up taking more risks and reaching out to each other. If you can think about early on in, in like a romance, all the things that you do for each other that um, are a little bit risky and, and testing the waters. And it's actually this vulnerability and anxiety at the early stages of a relationship that are really the building blocks for our intimacy and, and what makes us feel so connected. It's during this time that we see there's sort of like three relationship um, patterns. So there's lust, romance and um, attachment. And in that beginning stage, you see a lot of that romance and lust. Um, and certainly you see responses in the brain that are very similar to, um, you know, what we see with responses with like the dopamine activation, um, the ventral tegmental area has a lot of um, which activation, which is the area that manufactures dopamine, you see activation in areas that have a lot of dopamine receptors. So early on, there's um, just an excitement but spellbound will move into the next stage of a relationship, which is the formal bonding stage. And it's oftentimes in these moves from one stage to the next where there's a little bit of um, potential for vulnerability. So if we're moving into a formal bonding, which is where we move into more of a formal commitment, and there's a hesitancy on one partner that they're not sure um, or can't give a clear answer about whether or not they're going to be there for the other person or could commit the other person, that can be where the relationship doesn't move forward. Um, and it's sort of a letdown. 
So this next um, stage is where people, if they choose to get married, they get married or, or move into living together. And it's a change in the relationship where you start to become more of like a family and it reorganizes your life. You think about that time when you don't go home to your parents' house for every holiday, mm -hmm. but now you're splitting the holidays, right? It's like this, okay, now we are a unit and we're, mm -hmm. we're a committed bond. Um, so there's some vulnerability during that initial time and in, in kind of testing the waters of how committed we are for each other. And then you move into the third stage if, if people are choosing to do this, which is, um, th this is like a very traditional, I would say, pattern um, that, that Sue Johnson talks about, but uh, is parenthood. And what research shows is that the first three years after having a child, um, is associated with really significant drops in marital satisfaction. It's actually um, when there's a lot more conflicts that happen. And this is due to just differences of parenting styles, decreased sleep. There's new financial concerns. Um, there's just overall life stressors going on. And there's less energy um, to put into intimacy and connection and sex. There's um, some research that shows that new parents are eight times more, have eight times more arguments than childless parents. Uh, so it's just, again, where there's a bit of vulnerability. And the best way to navigate the vulnerability that's associated with being a new parent is to have a secure attachment ahead of time. So those couples that are securely attached prior to moving into parenthood are more likely to be able to navigate parenthood um, and kind of make it through. If you don't have that ahead of time, I can guarantee you that having a baby is not going to give it to you. It's not right. going to make it better. That's not going to fix things. That is not going to create the bond. I read in a book, and I'm pretty sure it was Gottman too, although I'd have to check that he sort of discourages people from filing for divorce during the first year with a baby mm. because of the fact that it's just such a difficult time in a relationship. Yeah. And that if you can make it through that, you know that you might be fine, but that that's a time when a lot of couples really do pull apart. Mm -hmm. It's Absolutely. just very stressful and hard on yeah. the relationship. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then, and then the next stage is, is mature love. So this is as children go older, they leave home, spouses retire, um, partners may be becoming ill, or maybe you're taking care of your own parents. And again, this is another transition time that can be a vulnerable time in relationships. Uh, for, for a long time, there was um, sort of, it was believed to be a U-shaped U um, curve in terms of marital satisfaction, where you're satisfied in the beginning, and then you dip down in the middle, and then you become more satisfied as you get older. But so, more recent research is showing that it's actually not quite a U-shaped curve, and that this later stage um, of relationship actually is more recently becoming one where divorce rates are actually going up. So marital divorce rates are about 45% in the United States, and they remain that way for pretty stable for a while. But there's an increase in divorce rates among age 50 and up. And in particular, it seems to be women that are initiating this. So 66% of separations, according to Sue Johnson in her book, Love Sense, um, were initiated by women. In, the, in this age 50 and up range. And part of this, what's happening in this mature love stage is that as these transitions happen, we, we, you know, we've been taking care of, you know, you've been dealing with being parents to your family and maybe involved in your career. And some of those things start to slow down and you wake up to the significant gap between you and your partner. 
because these slow erosions of disconnection have happened over time, but you haven't really noticed them necessarily because you've been so busy dealing with everything else, right? And so once some of those other stressors are out of the picture, it's like standing across the Grand Canyon from your partner. You're like, I don't even know how we find our way back again, because sometimes they've fallen out of love or they just don't don't really connect in, in the in the same way and haven't been using each other for connection. Yeah, sort of grown apart grown over apart. the years. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, it's so important to keep keep the connection going. And I want to talk a little bit about how we do that. So the the sort of three components of emotional responsive responsivity, according to Sue Johnson, are one, accessibility, which is how how accessible are you to your partner? Can you get their attention? Do you show up for them? Do you show them that they come first? Um, one of my um, good friends, she has three kids that are grown and away to college. And we were talking about this summer. And I said, what, you know, what are your plans for the summer? And she said, you know, I'm going to get on a motorcycle with my husband and we're going to drive. We're going to ride up to Canada. And I was like, hmm. whoa. <laughs> Okay. I was like, wow, do you like motors? Is that something you like, is that something you're into? And she's like, no, but I'm really into my husband. Hmm. I was like, wow. That's so sweet. That is so, yeah. you are way more awesome than I am. So, you know, that's, that to me is a strong relationship, right? You're, because you love somebody, you want to move, you know, it's not that you're sacrificing your needs for them, but actually you're, you're gaining something by, by being with them and being present with them. So can you get their attention? Um, and in, in the beginning, we certainly can get each other's attention when we're in that spellbound phase, but are we still, are we able to do that in a longer relationship? The second is responsiveness. Do, can you, um, depend on your partner to lean on when you are anxious or insecure? And can you express to them that underneath more vulnerable feeling? So rarely do specific verbal words really make something feel better. So there's nothing that anyone can necessarily say to make something feel better. It's actually the connection that makes it feel better. And can you have that connection with your partner that you can just express to them how you're feeling and your vulnerability and feel soothed by them? That's responsiveness. There's this, um, Brit, you know, Brene Brown, the uh-huh. social psychologist. I was watching the vulnerability. This, yeah, the vulnerability yeah. lady. She, she, I love this line for her, which is, she said, Rarely does an empathetic response start with the words at least. So if you can imagine like you're telling your partner, like I had the worst, you know, the worst day of school, a worst day with my kids and they were horrible and they were yelling at me and they were tantruming. And he says something like, well, at least you got to be with them today. Right. Yeah. At least, you know, at least you were able to be home because I was, you know, at work at least does not, does not create empathy or connection. Uh, No, it's sort of dismissing. It's dismissing. Yeah. 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 Um, Which leads to the third component of emotional responsiveness, which is engagement. And um, how emotionally engaged do you feel like your partner is towards them? Can you, can you take emotional risks with them? And this is also really about empathy. So do you feel like you, that you can practice perspective taking and staying out of judgment, really recognizing um, each other's emotions and um, communicate what each other are experiencing. So those are sort of some ways in which we can create more emotional responsiveness. And there's actually an emotional responsiveness self-test that you can take online called the A-R-E, which I can put in the show notes if you want to take this. It's something I often do with couples that have both 
both members of the couple take it, and then we review the results with each other. So how can we increase emotional responsiveness? I want to talk a little bit about a few steps. And one is just the simple step of um, rituals of connection. And this is something that we did a lot of in our workshop was setting up some ideas around what are the daily practices and strategies that we engage in that are more, more connecting with each other. And it can be everything from how, how do you greet each other? How do you, what do you do before you leave? Are you checking in with each other throughout the day? Are you um, hugging each other and touching each other outside of sex? Are you putting your arm around them? Are you just putting your hand on their leg? Those little subtle things are very important for keeping our, our physical connection. If you think back to that hand-holding study, touch is important. Um, I, what are you doing that's sharing in your daily activities? And um, you know, can you ex are you exercising together? Are you cooking together? So that you're not just divide and conquer in that life's tasks, but rather you're, you're working together um, as a couple. Those are um, rituals of connection. And then the second thing that's important is being able to identify what kind of cycle you tend to get into with your partner. So do you, when you're feeling vulnerable and you're in that kind of fight, do you have more of a tendency towards withdrawing and your partner has a tendency towards criticizing or attacking, or vice versa, Does do they withdraw and do you attack? And could you actually put a name on your cycle? Like what, what, what do you wanna call this when it happens? Because it's important to think about it as a cycle separate from you two individually, but actually as a dynamic that happens between the two of you that unravels your connection. And if you can take it out of, oh, that person's wrong or I'm wrong, and more into this is just a cycle we get into, we may be able to be more effective in being able to look at it and distancing ourselves from it. And once mm -hmm. we identify that cycle, then you then we work towards claiming your own moves instead of part, pointing out your partner's move. And really talking about that, when I say like a vulnerable, softer emotion, is the underlying emotions like hurt, loneliness, I felt ashamed, I felt scared, um, I was unsure, I didn't know if you were going to be there for me. Those underlying softer emotions that would actually have that person, the other person want to move towards us as opposed to more reactive emotions, which are things like I was so annoyed or, you know, <laughs> or the right. resentment or, you know, we, if we express the more vulnerable emotions, it, it will actually lead us to be more connected. And then being able to ask about your partner's deeper feelings and what are some of their raw spots or more vulnerable spots. So those are ways to help turn the cycle around. Um, which is what are your daily ways of interacting with each other and then also naming your cycle and then moving towards each other with a more vulnerable connection. Hmm. And then finally working towards forgiveness because oftentimes in our relationships there's a hurt or injury that's happened that keeps on rearing its ugly head over and over and over again. And unless it's time does not heal all wounds that saying. <laughs> Sometimes if things are not dealt with or actually discussed um, or worked into a place of forgiveness, then we it will keep on showing up. Um, and we all, in our if you are in love with someone, someone, I guarantee you, you will harm them at some point. It is just the nature of our relationships. And what is this, the source of that harm can be, the, can also be the thing that brings us close together. So let's talk about let's talk about forgiveness. And there's, um, you know, Michelle Gannon and uh, 
Dr. Dunitz gave some steps towards forgiveness and actually a strategy that was really helpful for me to work through and now I can use in working through with some of my clients. So if we think about forgiveness often occurs, I mean, because there's been some kind of conflict or injury. And one thing that we want to take note of is that there's certain injuries which are called attachment injuries, um, which are particularly um, painful in a relationship. And an attachment injury is an injury that occurs when one partner was particularly vulnerable. So uh, if we think about, um, you know, I'll just give some made up examples. Say there's a, a new young mom who has a three month old baby and their partner goes away on a, um, a business trip with leaving her with a three month old and he ends up gambling a ton of money. Okay, so there's the injury of, of having gambled a lot of money, but there's actually the, the problem is even deeper and then it's linked to a time when she was particularly vulnerable that that happened. Mm -hmm. So if we have an attachment injury, it tends to leave a deeper wound. And until we can actually express that underlying piece of, gosh, you left me with the baby. I was really vulnerable. I was really scared. And that's what makes it so much more painful. And for the other person to understand that, um, that's, it's really important that we access that. So, so it's like when, when the injury or the thing that happens in the relationship sort of touches like a real deeper thing going on a for the thing. person mm -hmm. yeah and, and in particularly a place where we are vulnerable so either it's something yeah. that we're vulnerable because of pre-existing conditions or we're sort of like insurance <laughs> plans we come in with our own pre-existing conditions <laughs> based right. on like previous relationships you know like if you were cheated <laughs> on or your relationship with your your mom if she left you when you were four you know you have your pre-existing conditions that you enter a relationship which mm -hmm. are sort of our raw spots and if an injury occurs around one of those raw spots it's going to be particularly harmful or if it occurs at a time in your life when you're particularly vulnerable so say you were very depressed or you just you know, went through a major, major life change and the injury occurs during that time. So we have to tend to that in our partners. And it's our job to be, we are responsible for our partner's raw spots because we know what they are, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we are yeah. responsible for attending to our partner's raw spots and being particularly kind and sensitive around those places. So forgiveness. Um, in order to move through a forgiveness practice, there's uh, pretty much about five steps that um, were described in this workshop that I attended. And the first step is the hurt person is able to share um, their pain as openly as possible. Again, using some of those softer emotions, things like I felt neglected, I felt hurt, I felt deserted, I felt alone or devalued. And the, the person that did the harm just gives them space. Uh, the, the, se the second component is that the other person really is remaining as emotionally present and non-defensive. So they're not saying the at least, and they're not saying the buts, and they're not actually doing a whole lot to defend themselves. They're just hearing and reflecting what they hear and in an understanding way. So starting with sentences like it's, I can see how you would feel, or I'm noticing that you're feeling, you were feeling this, am I right? Or it's understandable that you would feel that way. Oh my gosh, if you want a golden line, that's it. It's understandable that you would feel that way. Given Yeah, you know, that's very it's validating. Yeah, super validating. Yeah. Um, and then the hurt person shares more about the core feelings underneath their hurt. 
And even though the hurt person is the one that's hurt, it's also important they share in a way that makes it safe for their for the person, the partner to listen. So they're not moving into like a diatribe of attacking when they're sharing the hurts, but they're sharing in a way that would actually enhance the other person wanting to listen and, and, and connect. That's important. Um, and then finally, the, the other person um, shows empathy and, ex and accepts responsibility. So the key here is that you show that the pain, that you hear their pain, you understand it, and that it matters to you. Your pain matters to me. And you express remorse, and there is an I, sor I am sorry statement here, <laughs> which mm -hmm. um, I actually think having a direct I'm sorry can be very helpful. And um, let's talk about maybe, Debbie, some I'm sorry's that are not so helpful. Do you have any examples? <laughs> well, I think of the politicians or, you know, when you hear famous people making the apology speech and they always say something along the lines of, I'm sorry that you interpreted it that way, oh, or yeah. I'm sorry that I upset you. You know, it's, it, there's like this shit, there's no actual acknowledge of, acknowledgement of I'm sorry for something that I did, but yeah. more, I'm sorry that you feel this way about right. what I did. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's, it's not like a diverting. Apology. Yeah, it's not right. a real apology. Yeah. Um, or there's you know things like okay, fine, I'm sorry, I said it. Is that what you need? Is that what you need for me? <laughs> you know, right. or you know, I'll I'll say I'm sorry if you say that you're sorry about your part. Or you know, it, this is like going back to grade school. D does the I'm sorry really yeah. matter in grade school? No, but what matters is that you're 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 taking responsibility for what you did to harm the other person. So you don't have to actually say the words I'm sorry if you don't for whatever reason you're against that, but taking responsibility for, for harming someone. And, and I think it is, I think it is effective to say things like, I'm sorry that I harmed you, that I hurt you, Yeah. you know, and sort I'm sorry. Of, yeah. Go ahead. Well, just an acknowledgement that mm -hmm. maybe you did something that you wish you wouldn't have. Right. Yeah. Um, and then if, and if it's an attachment injury, then we would say something like, I'm sorry that I hurt you when you really needed me or at a time when you're particularly vulnerable or in an area that's particularly painful for you. I'm sorry that I did that. And then yeah. the hurt person asks for what would be comforting to them. So this, there isn't an assumption around, you know, what, what we can do to comfort, but, they, but it's really up to the person that's harmed that to ask for what would be comforting to them. Um, so for the person that's hurt, forgiveness is their choice of whether or not they're going to forgive something. And certainly there's relationships that, have undergone pretty significant injuries like infidelity, um, where forgiveness can happen and an attachment and a secure bond can be made again. But it, it is a choice. If you choose not to forgive, it will lessen the chances of your connection. Um, so, so forgiveness can allow for more connection, another chance. Um, so let's kind of wrap this up and talk about, I'm just going to give sort of a some strategies to kind of bring this all together that what we talked about today um, okay. to, to keep, keep your relationship strong. So here are some things for you to try at home. One is figuring out what is your attachment style? Do you have a tendency towards sort of avoidant withdrawing or do you have a tendency towards attack, um, criticizing anxious attachment or are you mm -hmm. securely attached? Second is if you can think about with your partner, what is the cycle that you tend to get into with your partner when you are in distress and how does that lead to the unraveling and maybe even give your cycle a name like the, you know, whatever, 
terrific tornado or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> give it a name. You can come with all kinds of good ones. All kinds of names. The third one is practice expressing the softer emotions and expressing the vulnerability. So what is it inside that you want to say, but you're not saying? Say that and see what happens. Swim upstream. And then the fourth is work towards acceptance of the differences between you and your partner and let go of trying to change your partner. You can let that go. If you can let some of this stuff go and just work towards acceptance, you will find so much more um, relief of stress and more satisfaction in a relationship. The fifth is respond to your partner's bids for connection. Noticing when they're making a bid and they may be subtle bids, but if you can respond to those subtle bids, if they put their hand on your shoulder, put your hand on their shoulder. See how that feels. Um, and practice some rituals of connection. Stay connected throughout the day. Send them a text. I'm thinking about you. Put a little note in their lunch. I mean, you do this for your kids. You do this for your friends. Probably the most important one to be doing it for long-term here is, is also your partner. Um, maybe think about what your partner's wish list would be. Write down wish lists for each mm -hmm. other and do, do a wish this week. Um, and then work, take some time to work through some old hurts and complete a forgiveness exercise with your partner. Okay, this one you may want to do with a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Could be one to not do alone. But, but if, you have, if you have some of these big blocks in your relationship that keep on rearing their ugly head, could be, you know, even just a few sessions with somebody to help you guide through a forgiveness practice could be really healthy and helpful. And then finally, repeat these steps over and over and over and over again. So we think about we water our lawns so they don't die. We need to water our relationships. They, it's not sort of you make your commitment and then you're done. This is something that we have to keep on doing over and that we can find our way back again. Even if you feel pretty distant, um, there's ways to find your way back. I would highly recommend uh, um, a th uh, one of these couples workshops and I'll put a link to it on our website because it's just in a, in a couple of days you can do what would probably take weeks and weeks of therapy to do because you're just focusing on the relationship and working through a lot of stuff. So I'll put their um, link on our website if you're interested in that. You can look up some of the books that we've talked about um, and certainly also look into maybe a couples therapist if you're interested in doing some of, um, more couples work as well. Well, thank you so much, Diana. I think this is really interesting stuff. And I've learned a lot. I, I can actually think of several things I'm going to try like today in the context of my relationship. So I appreciate this because this is all a lot of this stuff is is stuff that I'm not very familiar with. So I have really enjoyed listening to you. Yeah, well, good. Well, it was, thank it was, you. Yeah. And I and I totally dominated today because you were sick. So <laughs> you're wondering <laughs> yes. why thank I you. did not take a breath is because poor dad. I know. Just, they, just I kept muting myself to cough and blow my nose. So, so. thank you, Diana, for really <laughs> Take Sorry, it wasn't lead. more dialogue, but <laughs> next time. Well, it's good to talk with you and um, ha, stay beautiful spring there in Denver, I'm sure. And um, we'll be in touch sometime soon for another podcast of Psychologists Off the Clock. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.